Well, we're, we're going to continue in our uh, Revelation series this morning. We haven't got far to go. I know we're only up to chapter 7, and you think, oh, this is going to take us the next decade. It would if we kept going at the pace we're going, but I couldn't take that and neither could you. So I, I've decided really that I have done pretty much what I wanted to do in the book of Revelation, so I'm going to condense the rest into about four more messages. Is that okay with you? And you say, man, all the juicy stuff's coming. I'm doing that on purpose because that's where your fights come. That's where your arguments come. And uh, by the way, go to Connect Group this week because you get to disagree with me. One of the questions in there gets you to say whatever you like. If you've been sitting there getting frustrated with me for the last 19 times, now is your chance to be heard, all right? Because I put that at the first question was your chance to say what you think. How's that? Take it. All right. Now, really, the reason I am speeding up and going to be finishing it in about four messages is that the, the key to getting the most out of Revelation is not finding out who these characters are or what specifically is happening. The key is finding out how we as the church should respond in today's world. That is what Revelation is all about. It's not answering for you the question who. It's not answering for you the question what, so that you are now, know oh, what's going to happen. I know what's going to happen in 2024. <laughs> That's not what it's all about. People have tried that, and the books are in the bookshops, and they failed. It's not going to work, people, because it's symbolic language, and it's going to muck you up. It's going to muck the people you talk to up. If you use that for your evangelism, and then 2024 comes and it didn't happen, the rest of what you said becomes null and void. It's not what John and the Lord were attempting to do in the book of Revelation. Revelation is attempting, or it's, it's aiming at training us and preparing us to live in the world we are in now. It was given to a church 2,000 years ago who were going through hell to help them to get through their hell, not so that they could predict our hell. That makes sense? And so that is why we can speed up because all that stuff from now on really is inconsequential. The important thing is, how do we as a church respond in the world we are in now? So that's where we're going with it. So if I've disappointed you, if I haven't revealed to you who the Antichrist is, and I haven't told you who, who 666 is, and I haven't told you when the mark of the beast is coming, because it obviously wasn't your credit card because it hasn't come yet. <clears throat> Seriously, we, didn't, we were even scared to get credit cards years ago because it was the mark of the beast come on let's get over that that's not what revelation's about so let's look at what it is about shall we revelation chapter 6 we looked at it last time launches into the contents of the scroll that was sealed remember we're in the throne room of god and the, and, the, and there's a scroll there and john's upset because the scroll can't be opened. No one's worthy to open the scroll. No one can break the seals. And the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, is, is seen in the middle of the throne, and he's the one worthy to open the scroll. 
So the seals are broken in chapter 6, one at a time, bang, 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 and these things start to happen upon the earth. And what we saw last time is that is really a, 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 a sequence or a series of, of, of events that are happening on this earth for the last 2,000 years. It's not a sequential thing that's going to happen this century and then this one and then this one. These things have been happening. And if you've been awake, you would have seen in the last year, probably most of them have already happened in our lifetime, in our last year. We've had hailstones bigger than you've ever seen them before. Australia had it just the last week going through cars for goodness sake, hailstones, they'd kill you if they hit you, it's in the book of Revelation, it's already happened, we've seen fires like we've never seen before, not just Australia but, but America, um, just huge, horrible stuff, we've seen earthquakes, <laughs> locusts just recently, seriously? It's already happening. It has been happening. Okay? So, so we, need to, we need to see it as in a little bit of perspective here. It's not something that's going to happen. These are things that do happen, and of course they increase. Of course they become more and more intense. And I'm not trying to frighten you. It's just the way it's going to be. Because we have mucked up this planet terribly. Sin has mucked up this planet terribly. And we're now beginning to reap what we have sowed. And if you don't believe in global warming, God does. But not running your car is going to do anything about it. It's going to happen. It has already happened. Something needs to happen to clean the mess up. And God is going to do it. Whether it's in our lifetime or not, I don't care. God is going to do it. So Revelation chapter 6 gives us that process. In Matthew 13, 24 to 30, we read the, the parable of the weeds and the, and the, uh, the wheat. And we see that the, there was wheat sown in the field and there were weeds sown in the field. An enemy came and sowed weeds, and that's what's happened on this planet. God planted us in this planet, and then the enemy came along and planted sin in the midst of us. And from that time on, they've been growing up side by side. And, and that parable tells you, leave them alone. Don't pull out the weeds because you, you muck up the wheat. Let them grow together. When they both come to maturity, we'll sort the whole mess. And that's really what Revelation is pointing to, that together, good and evil grow up. We get better, we should. Dark gets darker, light gets lighter, until they both get to the brightest and the darkest together, and then the end comes. When is that? Who cares? The fact is, we're on this planet, and this is happening. How do we act? How do we respond? Another thing that's important for us to understand is that Revelation is an apocalypse. We talked about this way at the beginning. And as a result, it uses the medium Medi yes, it uses the medium of symbolism, picture language. Apocalypses do that all the time. Daniel is an apocalypse. Ezekiel is an apocalypse. Picture language. Picture language that the people of the day could understand. You get dragons, you get harlots flying through the sky. You get all the stuff that they understand from their mythology and all that sort of stuff. But the picture language is there to describe the battle between light and darkness, good and evil. That's what an apocalypse is all about. 
It's written to a people who are going through a hard time so that they can understand why they're going through a hard time. And the picture language is there to help them to do that. And a key to a good understanding of all the imagery in Revelation. Now, you mightn't like me now, but I'm going to say it. I didn't always believe this, but I do now. The key to a good understanding of all the imagery in Revelation from now onwards is to consider that everything you are reading is symbolic unless you're told otherwise. So if you see a harlot flying through the sky, there's not going to come a lady one day with wings or on a pot flying through the sky. It's a picture of something else. If it's talking about a dragon, a dragon is not necessarily going to appear. It's talking about something else or someone else. So it's picture language. Unless the book tells you it's something, it's literal, take it figuratively. Does that make sense? That helps me. As soon as you start literalizing everything in Revelation, you've then got a problem because some is, it's con- it contradicts itself as soon as you make it literal. All right, now I've upset you, I'll carry on. What I've found is to interpret it any other way, you end up with a whole lot of inconsistencies that you can't balance. Because Revelation 12 is right in the middle of it, and that goes right back to the beginning of the fall of Satan. And you think, what on earth, if it's sequential, and if everything's happening after the other, where's this Revelation 12 come from? What's going on? It's telling a story, folks, that we need to understand using picture language to do it. So that's the approach I'm following. If you've got a different view, that's totally fine. God loves you, and I love you too. Doesn't matter. Really doesn't matter. God's not going to get off his throne no matter what you believe. You might think, well, why are you bothering I'm bothering because of what we need to learn through it. All right? All right, let's, with all that in mind, that's my disclaimer. Let's go to Revelation chapter 7, shall we? That was a long disclaimer. Sometimes you've got to do long disclaimers, otherwise you lose people. Okay, Revelation chapter 7. This is, <laughs> this is a passage that really gets people wound up, and I might upset you too as we go through this. Let's read it all. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Just understand symbolism here. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. So this wind is harm. This wind is judgment. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. And it goes through them. By the way, there's a tribe missing and there's one mentioned twice. Leave you to sort that out at home. Verse 9, after this I looked and there before me, so if it's literal, we've already got a problem. Anyway. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God. 
God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where do they come from? And I said, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will spread out his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to the springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And that's really what I want to preach about, not the 144,000. Does that make sense? All right. But we do have to wade through 144,000 to get there. So let's do it quick, shall we? Who are these people? First of all, we find that there's a, there's a seal put on, on these people. They are sealed. Now, there's two... More than two, but there are a couple of good understandings of seal. A seal is a thing put into wax on an envelope so that you can prove that somebody has been interfering with it. So it keeps the envelope secure, correct? That's not the meaning of seal here. Another meaning of seal is an identification mark, like a brand on a cow, uh, a seal. And that's the meaning here. These people are sealed. They are identified as being different. They are identified as being separate. Now, what we need to also understand in the book of Revelation, and I know I'm throwing a lot of stuff at you today, but we need to understand that Revelation is also a parallel to the book of Exodus. The things you see in the book of Exodus, you see symbolically in the book of Revelation. Locusts are in Exodus. You see them in Revelation. Hail is in Exodus. You see it in Revelation. The water turned to blood in Exodus. You see it in Revelation. Plagues in Exodus, coronavirus in Exodus, it's in Revelation. Don't be surprised that these things are happening, people. They happened in the book of Exodus, they're happening in the book of Revelation, which means they're happening in our planet now, and they're going to increase. It doesn't mean you have to go down to the supermarket and buy a whole lot of groceries. Fear go. It just means we have to be aware that we are living in a planet that is under attack, a planet that is in the midst of a fight between... This is going off and on, so I think my battery's shot. The fight between good and evil. We are in it, and it's going to get stronger and stronger and stronger. But as in the book of Exodus, God marked his people. Remember what he did? He got them to slay the land, and they had to put the blood where? On the doorposts of the house. And if the blood was on the doorposts of the house, what happened over? He passed over the, that house because the blood was sealing that house. It was identifying them. The blood on the lintel sealed them or identified them as being people who would be protected. And that's what this is all about. There's a group of people on this planet who are going to be protected from the final judgments to come or are going to be protected in the midst of stuff that happens now. It does not mean you won't get the flu. So the wind is symbolic of purifying judgments that are going to come upon this earth and clean up the mess once and for all. So who are these people? There's two groups of people here. Who are there? <laughs> well... There's two groups of people that look like two groups. Who are they? Now, the clue here is in the language that's used. In verses 4 to 8, John hears 
that there are 144,012 from Ephraim's tribe. And in verse 9 onwards, he actually sees a great multitude. Do you want me to use the handheld? He sees a great multitude. He hears there are 144,000. He sees actually a great multitude. Now, the significance of 144,000 is in the number itself. 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000. In Jewish numerology, that means the completeness of the people of God. The total sum, the completeness. If it's only 144,000, we've got a problem, people. Seriously? The Jehovah's Witnesses worked that out a long time ago. They thought they were the 144,000, but as soon as they became 144 and one, they had to change their theology. I believe, you can believe differently, quite okay. I believe these are the same people. The 144,000 was a number that the Jews would understand as total completeness, or saying, all of God's people are here. The whole lot. They're all here. None are missing. And then he actually sees what he hears in symbolism. He sees them all. And there's a multitude, far too much to count. Not 144,000, not a little sum, but far too many to count from every tribe, from every nation, every color. Ugandans are there. Everybody's there. You are there. Your mum and dad are there if they've passed away in the Lord. Everybody is there standing before the throne. Isn't that awesome? You're actually reading stuff that you're in. I'm there. You're in the Bible. So what do we learn about that multitude? This is where I want to go. Verse 9 to 17. We've read that through. I'm not going to read it through again. You can do it yourself. First of all, verse 9, no one is missing who has the Lord in their heart. No group is missing. No tribe is missing. No color group is missing. That's where some of our, our uh, people have been into racialism in the past, have missed it. There's no such thing as a cursed race. There's no such thing as a, as a color that, that God doesn't like. Every color's there. Every race is there. Every language is there. God loves us all equally. You are there. Your saved loved ones are there. Nobody is missing. That's the first thing we learn about this group. Secondly, verse 10, we read this. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. These people know where to find victory. And this is where we're heading with this this morning. These people know where to find victory. Salvation literally means rescue. In the Old Testament theology, it means the victory from which rescue is won. And we sang about it this morning. The victory happened here. 2,000 years ago, Jesus won the victory for us. Out of that victory comes your rescue day by day. Out of that victory that Jesus has already won, no price needs to be paid any longer. It's paid once and for all. You can't walk over broken stones or bottles or beat yourself or do anything to make it any better. Jesus has finished it once and for all. But out of what he has done, I now begin to walk in rescue day by day. 
by day. I outwork my salvation day by day. And the more I get onto it and the more I wake up to it, the quicker it happens. Mm. So my rescue comes through his victory. That's what this is talking about. And the point about that is the ultimate victory comes from God. Nowhere else. He's at the center. He's brought about the victory on our behalf. Our job is to walk in it. Third point. They know where to find everything of value. Let's go to verse 12. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. You look at that list of things. We've talked about this before. Those are things we look for. Those are things we human beings look for in life. We look for glory. Come on, you look for a bit of glory every now and again. We look for honor. We love being honored. We look for strength in our weakness. We look for power. We seek wisdom. Thanks we are after. Praise. All of those things are important to us. Where are they found? In God. These people have discovered that the things we long for most in our humanness we find in God, nowhere else. He is the source of all we long for. Psalmist said, all my streams are in you. Everything I long for is in you. I can't find it in a better job. I can't find it in another church. I can't find it with another wife. I can't find it with a, a boat. I can't find it with a car. I can't find it with this, that, or the other thing. The only place I'll find it is in Him. And if I have nothing on this planet, and I have Him, I have it all. It's all in him, these people have discovered where value is found from. And the fourth thing we find about, out about these people, and this one you won't like, because some of us have a theology that one day we're all going to be taken away and we're going to miss it all. <laughs> Verse 14, he says, who are they? He says, sir, you know. And I, he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The theology of Revelation matches the whole theology of Scripture all the way through. In Isaiah, we are told we come through the waters and we will not drown. We will come through the flame and it will not kindle upon us. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the flame, and they discovered the fourth person in the flame. None of those were rescued from. They discovered salvation in and through. That is scriptural. It follows all the way through. Paul went through struggles. Jesus went through struggles. The disciples all went through suffering. The early church went through suffering. The church today, if it's not in the Western world, is going through intense suffering and persecution. Revelation teaches us salvation through, not salvation from. And these people experience victory in the midst of their suffering. Those who came out of the great tribulation. It refers to the time of suffering on the earth, tribulation. It's not just been happening since the devil's been around. Hmm? You just ask the Christians in Iraq. Ask the Christians in North Korea. 
going to be more martyred in our generation than any generation previously. Tribulation has been happening all the way through. The early church 2,000 years ago was going through tribulation. They were being martyred for their faith. What they were reading in Revelation was happening in their lifetime. They looked at the Antichrist and they saw Nero. Tribulation. And what we read about, these people come out of the great tribulation. They've discovered victory in the midst of it. See, Revelation, as I said, doesn't share a theology of escape. But it says God's people will come through and come through better and come through brighter and come through stronger and come through more powerful because they've discovered the source of their strength. And it's not in what's on this planet. It's what is in their heart. So what keeps this lot going? Verse 14. They've washed their robes and made them white in the Lamb of God, in the blood of the Lamb of God. They are clean. They're washed in the blood of the Lamb. They are immersed in God's plan of salvation. It's Exodus imagery again. The blood is on the doorpost of their hearts. The destroying angel has to fly over. People, it's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that makes us clean. It's what Jesus did on the cross for us that makes us clean. You can't do anything to make you better. He has done it. He has done the final act. It is what Jesus did for you that cleanses you before God. There's no, you, you, you can't improve on that. This group don't have to wait around in purgatory to be cleansed. That's a demonic theology. Seriously. Keeps people in a certain church. Because if you leave, you've got no one to pray for you. People, you don't have to wait for other people to pray you out of a place to get into heaven. When you leave this planet, you go, not this planet, when you leave this life, you go straight into the presence of God. Why? Because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what we, it's the transaction we have made with the Lord Jesus Christ that saves us, not anything anybody else does or we do. He has set us free. And these people are clean because of what Jesus has done. They have total assurance based on the blood. If you have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ in your life today, you have total assurance of salvation. You can be totally confident. I am right before God. God accepts me. If I die today, I am right. And yet most of us don't live like that. We sort of live, oh, I wonder whether I've done enough. You know, did I pray enough? Did I really worship well? Oh, I kicked the cat this morning. I swore at the kids. Oh, man, I called the pastor a dork. Will God forgive me? Well, number one, yes, he will if you ask him. Number two, it's got nothing to do with your eternal salvation, the fact that you're a human being and you've got faults. What your eternal salvation is based on is what Jesus did for you, not what you do for yourself. We are saved by the blood of the Lamb. We are cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. We are set free by the blood of the Lamb. And we are whole people by the blood of the Lamb and we're just going to learn to walk in it. And it, we slip up and we fall a few times. But hey, we get better, don't we? Yeah. All right, so they're clean. Why are they clean? Because of what Jesus has done for them. And let's finish with this because this is awesome. Verses 15 to 17, they're blessed. You mean they're blessed and they've been through hell? 
Yep. They've been in the middle of tribulation. What could be worse than tribulation, really? Well, half of you are living in it right now. Some of your lives feel like tribulation, don't they? Come on, they do. You wonder where on earth your escape's going to come from. It, looks, it feels like you're in a prison. It feels like everybody's against you. We all go times through times like that. Well, how do we respond? Let's look at it, verse 15 to 17, and then we'll go home. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Think about this imagery. This is beautiful. He will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. Psalm 23. He will lead them to the springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, which means they had tears in their eyes. You can't wipe away tears that aren't there. These people have been through difficulty, just like you and I will go through difficulty during our lifetime. Revelation does not teach a theology of absence of suffering or absence of difficulty. Pentecostal people learn this. It is part of living. There will be times when you do not get healed. There will be times when people die that shouldn't. There will be times when things happen that are wrong. There will be times when we're persecuted. There will be times when we're mistreated. There will be times when we're misunderstood. That's tribulation, but how do we respond in it? And where is there hope in it? These people are blessed as they come through it. Let's look at this blessing. There's four of them. God will spread his tent over them. That's Old Testament imagery again. The tabernacle in the wilderness. God was in the midst of them in the tabernacle. God was in the tent. The tent was in their midst. They were around it, looking at it. It's changed, people. He's pitched his tent over us. We are all in the tent. Only Moses and Aaron could go, well, no, Moses and Joshua could go into the tent. We are in it. Every single one of us, he has pitched his tent over us. He surrounds you. Sometimes you think, where is he? He's surrounding you. You are immersed in him. You mightn't feel it. It's got nothing to do with your feelings. The fact is, he has pitched his tent over you. Verse 16 and 17, there'll be no more thirst, no more hunger. The trials of this earth will be no more. There's going to come a time, people, when all of that tribulation is going to cease. There's going to come a time when you're in total and complete peace and well-being. It's coming. That's the hope we all have. That's the hope a person who's suffering with cancer has. They know that this is not great, but at the end of this, praise God, I'm going to be free. That's why we take it, when we take a Christian funeral, it's a celebration, it's a victory service. Because they finally walked into the freedom that they have in Jesus' name. No more tears, no more suffering. It's all over, over. And I'm not saying you should get off this planet, it's not the point. The point is there is a hope. 
that as we walk through, even if it's a difficult time, God's pitched his tent over us. He has immersed us in his love, and there's going to come a time he'll take us through. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they came out of the fire. They didn't stay in it. In verse 17, the lamb will be their shepherd, even through the the valley of the shadow of death. Your rod and your staff comfort me. He's your shepherd. But where is the lamb? He's at the center of the throne. And this is the bit we often miss. The Lord is my shepherd when the lamb is allowed to be at the center of the throne in my life. You've got to make him number one, people. If he's not number one, how can he be your shepherd? Hmm? If you're off chasing after other shepherds over here, there, and everywhere, how can he be your shepherd? Seriously. He has to be number one. He's at the center of the throne. And these blessings come when God is permitted to rule in our lives. And fourthly, they still went through stuff, but they were blessed in it. And really, that's what Revelation is trying to teach us. People, there is a place of security. And it's not in the stuff you own, and it's not in your life being good for you. The place of security is in what Jesus has done for you on the cross and in the place you put him in your heart. Is he number one? If he's number one, the Lord's your shepherd. You're following the one who can take you places. If he's number one, his tent is over you. You are immersed in his love. You can't get out of it. David said it, I can't escape from your presence. And there's days I want to. But you're everywhere. Isn't that awesome? He's everywhere. He's in the middle of your pain. He's in the middle of your trial. He's in the middle of your temptation. He's, he's not the causing it, but he's there. So he doesn't rescue us from stuff. He's with us in it. And occasionally he rescues us from where he's going to because he doesn't. I can tell you he doesn't. I've prayed for God to take stuff away and he doesn't. I've prayed for him to do things and he doesn't. And then he's done things I haven't asked him to do. Hmm? He's God. But our responsibility is to follow him wherever he takes us. Our responsibility is to trust him no matter what is going on in our lives. That is what Revelation is showing. There's a people of God in the middle of darker and darker and ugh. Some of your lives feel like that sometimes. You feel like there's dragons chasing you all over your lifetime. But you know what? In the midst of that, there's a people of God shining. Like 2,000 years ago in that early church, they were shining. They weren't, they weren't hiding in a little hole, quaking. They were just shining for God. They were standing for God. They were witnessing for God. They were being Christians, even though they couldn't buy and sell anymore. They couldn't go to the marketplace. They were being fed to the lions. They were being crucified. They were being sawn in two. There were all sorts of horrible things happening. And they continued to serve God. Why? Because God was number one. And the question I want to ask you this morning is, who's number one? Who's number one in your life? Because if it's not God, this stuff will touch you. If Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not have God as number one, they were hamburgers. 
But because God was number one, he was in the fire with them. And he protected them in the midst of what they were going through. And what I want to do for you this morning is to lift off you that wicked theology that says you're not a good enough Christian because you're going through stuff. I want to lift that off you. I want to, I want to say to you, it's got nothing to do with you, whether you're a good Christian or a bad Christian. It's just you happen to draw the short straw every now and again. But how are you going to respond when you pick out that short straw? What are you going to do with the cards you've been dealt? You know? Do you know you can win a game of poker with twos? It's how you play them. That's not a very spiritual analogy. It's quite a good one. What do you do with the life you've been given? That's what this book is trying to say to us. What do you do? What do I do with the life I've been given? Who's number one in that life? If I put God as number one in my life, I will win. Even if you kill me, Satan, I will win. You can't defeat me. Because God has spread his tent over me. And God doesn't let you in his tent so there. Isn't that a nice thought? Doesn't mean you can get away with stuff and do whatever you like. Because God's got to be number one. But if God's number one in your life, I tell you, devil can't touch you. He can kill you, but he can't touch you. That which is important. God looks after. Will I, earn a, will I own a Rolls Royce? Probably not. I don't really care. I'm quite happy with three. It's much easier to look after. It's not stuff, people. It's not stuff. It's him. And if he's number one, you can have Marmite sandwiches for the rest of your life and be happy. Or Vegemite, if you don't like mama. By the way, you can live on that. It's a balanced diet. But the point is, it's not what happens to you. It's what, how you respond that matters. Father, I just pray for us this morning that you would teach us to be like that church that Revelation was written, to, written for and to. A church that knew how to put you first. Robes white, washed in blood. Not literally, that's spooky. But symbolically washed in your wholeness, dwelling in the victory that you have won so that we might be rescued in the midst of stuff. Teach us, Lord, to be strong. Teach us, Lord, to be people who, who are real. Teach us, Lord God, to be people who will stand for you no matter what goes on in our lives and come through it shining like the sun because your tent